All right, good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Good. Good morning. All right. Well, this week we're going to be picking up uh, where we left off last week in James chapter 2, uh, page 1006 in Jamin's book, um, 1,966 in mine, so I've got the extended version here. Um, but if you uh, do not recognize me, it's because it's my first time up here, uh, and I am, thank you. <laughs> So just grateful and honored to uh, be able to stand up here and teach the Word of God this morning. Uh, my name is CJ. Um, my wife Taylor here. I've uh, been married for uh, seven years, celebrating our anniversary here in August coming up. Um, we have four foster children in our home, um, ages two, uh, four, seven, and 11. And uh, we started coming to Connection Church in 2019. Um, we had moved to Savannah. And we um, were, were decided that uh, we needed to look for a church because that's what we do. We were raised in the South, we grew up in church, and we moved to a new place, and we wanted to find community. And so what better place to try and find friends and make community than uh, thing to go to church? And uh, little did we know that the community that we found was, was greater than anything that we could have ever imagined, right? And so if you had told me that uh, on that day that I walked into Connection Church in 2019, that less than five years later that I would have four foster kids and would be standing on this stage uh, preaching, I probably would have just laughed at you. Um, and so I think, as a matter of fact, like it's been almost a year since Michael asked me um, if I would uh, consider getting up here and do this. And when, when he asked me, I'm pretty sure I did actually laugh at him. Right? And so he does it in this way where he, say, he says, uh, like, I don't want you to give me an answer. Um, but he said he, he'll give you, the, give you what he wants you to do, and he'll say, don't answer me. Just, just think about it. And, and so he did that, and I think it was about six months again before he, before he brought it up. And um, if you heard my, my testimony for the men at, uh, at Forge, if you heard that testimony, right, we have this, had this idea of, like, my yes is on the table. Right, and so um, he asked me again, and I said, "Well, you know, I put I put my yes on the table, and until God tells me no, then my yes is on the table." And uh, I never felt like God told me no, so here we are. Um, and so when I found out that uh, we were going to be talking about the Book of James, um, I kind of kind of got a little chuckle out of that. Um, when we first started coming in 2019 and I joined a, a men's connect group, uh, the first thing that we studied was the book of James. Um, and it's had such a, just an impact on my life. Um, Taylor made fun of me for months because, right, it's this short book. We're going to cover it here in, in one month. Um, and in connect group, I'm pretty sure that we took eight months to get through the book of James, right? And so then when I started discipleship, um, one of the things that we went through, one of the first things we went through was the book of James again. And so just over the last five years or so, just this book has just had such a profound impact on my life and just how, um, how my life has turned out over the last few years and just the, the steps that we've taken and ultimately um, the reason that I'm up here today. Uh, so let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get going. So Lord Jesus, um, just again, just thankful and grateful and humbled for the opportunity to, to just stand up here this morning and, and, and teach the word. Um, just pray this morning that 
uh, that as we go through this chapter, that, um, that ultimately that you would empty myself of my flesh and that you would, you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I would decrease and that, it, that you would increase, and that the words that come out of my mouth this morning will be nothing but you. I pray for the hearts in this room, that they would be open to receive the word that you have, that you've prepared for them. I'm just thankful again, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so to recap, um, what we talked about last week, right, we talked about three things. We talked about a faith that perseveres, we talked about a faith that obeys, and we talked about a faith that loves, right? So a faith that, a faith that perseveres, right, as followers of Christ, we will in our life face trials, right? And it's up to us as believers, as Christians, to find the joy and to persevere through those trials, right? And a faith that obeys, right? We should be doers of the word, not only hearers of the word. No, we should be doers of the word. We should obey the commands of scripture, right? And a faith that loves. And we said that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after widows and orphans and to keep oneself unstained from the world, right? So again, a faith that perseveres, a faith that obeys, and a faith that loves, and again, we talked about uh, making sure that we have proper context, right? We can't study content without having proper context. So we had three questions, right? Who is writing? Why is it being written? And what is the author's purpose for writing this, right? So who is writing? We have James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? And he's writing to the Jews that have been scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution after the crucifixion, right? And so he's not writing to one specific church. He's writing to all the churches that have been established and scattered uh, throughout the regions. And so this is not, um, you know, why, this is widely considered to be one of, if not the very first letters that's written to the churches at this time, Right? And so why is this being written? Well, James, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, right, he's hearing about all these things, about all the happenings that are going on in these churches around the region, and ultimately he's concerned. Right? He says um, he's concerned about their faith. He says the things that you're doing do not add up to the things that you're saying. And so he's concerned that their faith may not be genuine. Right? And so James has a love for the church. He's got a heart for the church. He's got a heart for the mission. Right? We talked about that our mission is uh, right, to uh, take the word and spread it throughout. And so his heart is to see the church flourish, to see the church grow, and to see the church ultimately reach spiritual maturity. Right? And so his purpose for writing this Right, so he's he's concerned that their they, their their faith is not genuine, right? And so he's challenging them to examine if their faith is real. Right, he's going to encourage them and challenge them that they need to make steps, right, to move towards spiritual maturity, right? And so one thing, um, one thing just to to get out of the way, um, every morning. Uh, every Monday morning, and I walk in this church for discipleship, and as I walk into the office in there, I pass a, a whiteboard on the wall, right, and it says that if you are a member of the family, right, if you're a member of this family, I'm a member of this family, and you're a member of this family, right, that rebuke and challenge, right, feels like love, 
And so ultimately, what I want you to remember this morning is if you feel rebuked and you feel challenged, that it comes from a place of love. Because if I'm standing up here as a teacher of the word, and I try to have the same heart as James, he's challenging and encouraging and rebuking them in their actions. But ultimately, it's because of a place of love, uh, because of his love for the church, and because of his love for the people, and because he wants them to become spiritually mature. All right, and so as we get into this, uh, to just to define a couple things, right? So we're going to define spiritual maturity, right? And so the purpose of, of this sermon, we're going to define spir- spiritual maturity as spiritual knowledge plus spiritual application, all right? So spiritual maturity is spiritual knowledge plus spiritual application, all right? So how do we obtain spiritual knowledge, Right? Spiritual knowledge is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Right, we, we read in chapter 1 that anyone who seeks wisdom, who wants wisdom, all they have to do is to ask, and it will be given to them. Right, So spiritual knowledge is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and it's gained by spending time in God's Word, in prayer, and spending time in community. All right? And so what do you want to do? If you want to learn about something new, right? There's all we've all had times in our life where we wanted to learn something new, a new skill, a new um, a new amount of knowledge, right? And so there's a couple things you can do, right? If you're me, you go straight to YouTube, right? If you wanna if you wanna learn something new, then you go watch some YouTube videos, right? When I was in school, what you do? You open the textbook, you read, and you find out information about something that you want to know, right? But ultimately, if you really want to learn something new, the best way to learn something new is to find someone who already knows that thing and to submit yourself under them and to have them teach you and to learn from someone who already knows what they're doing, right? And so in the church, as we just learned in our last series, we call this discipleship, right? And as um, at Connection, as we just rolled out, we call this our Equip Pathways, Right, so one of the ways that you gain spiritual knowledge in the church is to submit yourself to discipleship. Right, so in 2008, uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, published a book called Outliers. Right, and in this book, a best-selling book, he discusses that in order to become an expert on any given subject, it takes a minimum of 10,000 hours, or approximately 10 years, of deliberate practice. To become an expert on something, right? And so, but what is deliberate practice, right? He, d- he defines deliberate practice as setting goals, getting quick feedback, and doing countless drills to improve your skills with the intention of becoming a master, right? So you don't just become an expert just by showing up and doing something, right? It involves intentionality. It's not just showing up And plain and simple, most of the time, it's just not fun, all right? And so the same research that shows that while many people will spend 10,000 hours trying to become an expert, a lot of people will spend 10,000 hours and never become an expert, right? How many people in here have been driving for more than 10 years, right, (laughs) right? Not experts, right? You can tell, not experts, right? And that's because over time, if you aren't constantly trying to improve, then what happens is you actually become worse at the thing that you're doing, 
All right? And so what they, what they uh, discovered after this study was published, that this really only applies to skills-based things. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to knowledge-based things, right? So 10,000 hours is of a skill, and they also discovered that it doesn't really account for someone's natural ability, right? I can spend 10,000 hours trying to become an expert and playing basketball, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm 5'7", and LeBron James is 6'9", <laughs> and I'm never going to be as good as he is at basketball, right? So that brings us to the 100-hour rule, which is where we apply to intellectual and knowledge-based things. And the 100-hour rule says that if you are willing to spend 100 hours per year, right, that's 18 minutes per day, and you spend 100 hours per year studying a, uh, a, a given knowledge or um, intellectual-based subject, that in 18 minutes per day, you can become better than 95% of the world's population at any given subject, right? So how, how many people would like to be 90, better than 95% of the world at any given subject? I think we can all say that we would say yes to that, all right? So as we talk about spiritual knowledge, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about spiritual application, we simply define spiritual, spiritual application as reading the word and doing what it says, right? Reading the word and doing it what it says. We'll hear this all the time in connect groups. You'll hear from this stage. All it takes for spiritual application is read the word and do what it says, right? Not listening to what someone else has to say about the word, not getting in your car in the morning and turning on your podcast and finding out what someone else has to say about the word, but you intentionally spending time in the word, reading what it says, and applying it to your life, right? It's hard it's not easy. If it was easy, then we would all have done it already, and we would all be applying these spiritual things to our lives, and we would have all reached spiritual maturity, but we're not there because it's hard, which is why part of that is being in community, right? So being in community is where it becomes easier to apply the spiritual word to your life. It's easier when you have someone beside you who's spurring you on and encouraging you to go, look, this is what you read and this is what you're not doing, right? You read this in the word, you're not doing it, but I'm going to encourage you to do these things, to apply these things to your life so that you can become mature, right? And the second thing about spiritual maturity we're gonna talk about is spiritual maturity is more closely related to obedience than it is to time, Right, so I shared a few weeks ago while I was up here talking about uh, my time in discipleship that I was raised in church and I spent, spent time growing up in church and I admired these men that I saw, these spiritually mature men, and um, I didn't really know how to become one. Right, I felt uh, that if I just spent time in the church, right, I put in my 10,000 hours, put in my 10 years, that one day that I would become one of these spiritually mature men. And so uh, what happened was when I got to that point, when I had spent those 10 years, um, not 10,000 hours, I did the math just to make sure, um, but in 10 years, if you spend an average of three hours a week at church, that's not even close to 10,000 hours. So um, but what I found that once I had, I had reached this point, I had not become a spiritually mature man. Right? I had been looking at these men, and I had gotten to the same place in my life that they were at, 
but I had not become spiritually mature, right? Even, even though I had been a Christian since I was a child, I was not growing in my, in my spirituality, right? And so it wasn't until that I started to obey the Holy Spirit to read the word and do what it said uh, that I started to become spiritually mature, right? And so we're going to keep these two things as mind, in mind as we read through this chapter, right? So spiritual maturity equals spiritual knowledge plus spiritual application. And then spiritual maturity is more closely related to obedience than it is to time. All right, so we're going to read chapter two. Um, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then uh, we will start going and breaking it down. All right, so uh, James chapter two. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the foot, sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are still a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it then, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe, and they shudder senseless person are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless wasn't abraham our father justified by works in offering isaac his son on the altar you see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled that says abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called god's friend you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Right? And so we end chapter one talking about what is true religion, right? And we begin chapter two uh, by starting to call out sin that we see in the church. 
right? And so calling out the sin of favoritism, right? And this is a sin that we don't want to admit that we have, right? The, uh, the world tells us that discrimination and, and, um, and favoritism are things that we shouldn't talk about. Uh, but James here clearly calls it out, and he says, this is a sin that cannot be tolerated in the church, right? It's a, it's a sin that we don't want to admit that we struggle with, but ultimately all of us do in some way. Right, so he says in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. And so here we see the only distinction that should be made is between the glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, and man. There is no other distinction to be made. Right? We have a God of the universe who is so great and so glorious that we cannot even look at his face. He is so high and so far above us, right? And then we have man, right? Despicable man who's dead in their sin, who cannot be in the presence of God. And so he says here that you want to, you want to separate these men, right? The only separation is between God and man. And here you are, you want to separate man based on what they look, what they wear, right? what they can offer you, their wealth, right? And all we care about is what someone else can do for us, right? And he continues on. He says, for if someone comes into your meeting, right? So the meeting here, the, the meet, can be a meeting at a synagogue. It can be our church service. It can be any type of community gathering. It can be our connect group, whatever it is, right? So if someone comes into the meeting wearing a gold ring and is dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, Right, and so a little side note here, like you find in these times in in Rome and in Jerusalem, like there's actually stores, there's shops that you can go into and you can rent uh, gold rings and jewelry and fine clothes and you can wear these things around town, wear them to the meeting to make you appear wealthier than you are, right? So that someone will show you favoritism, right? So you see here the... Uh, the, the times that they're writing in, right, are much like today, right? These are still things that we do today. We go out and we lease things or we buy things or we do all these things to make us appear better than we are so that someone will treat us better than we deserve, right? So if we continue on, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Right? So he says you have your meeting, you have your church service, and two people come in. Right? And you have the man who's well-dressed. He pulls up in the nice car. And you think... We're going to treat this man nice, right? It's summertime. Attendance is a little low. We need to boost the offering a little bit, right? This wealthy man, what can he do for us? What can he give to us? And so you treat him a certain way, right? But the poor man who comes in, right, he doesn't have anything to offer you. And you say, well, if you don't have anything to offer me, then I don't really have much to offer you, right? And so you push this person to the side. You pay less attention to them because they have nothing of value to, right? But what does he say in verse five? He says their value isn't in their status or their possessions, 
right? Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him, right? This person may not be wealthy by our standards, right? But it says that God chose them to be wealthy in faith, right? So you hear us talk all the time about our mission. We have a mission here at Connection Church, right? Our mission is to make disciples and to multiply churches among the nations. And let me tell you that if we're going to succeed in carrying out this mission, we're going to need those who are rich in faith, not just those who are rich in wealth, all right? If God can take the two loaves and the fish, and he can feed thousands of people, let me assure you that he can take the meager dollars and materials that we have, and he can use them to reach the nations, right? But our faith ultimately is what's going to lead us to be able to accomplish the mission, right? So if we continue on, all right, how many people like to be told that you're doing well at something? All right, everybody likes to be told that they're doing well. And this is something that I really, I really like. If you want to tell me that I'm doing well, you can, you know. Um, but it's something that I'm not good at doing to other people, right? So you can talk about love languages, right? Words of affirmation. You can talk about spiritual gifts. You can talk about the gift of encouragement, right? And these are things that I do not do well, but I like to receive, but he says right here in verse 8, he said, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. All right? So, again, like it's, it's ironic that the, the things that we, um, that we like to receive are not the things that we like to give. But he says right here, all it takes for God to tell you that you are doing well is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we see that the best measure of our faith is seen in how we love other people, right? The best measure of our faith is seen in how we love other people, loving our neighbor the same way that we love ourselves. All right, men, pay attention here for just a minute, especially the, the married men, right? I'm going to give you a little heads up, all right, to keep you out of the doghouse. I'm going to ask this next question. And all the married men, without hesitation, and very quickly, are going to raise your hand, right? How many of us love our spouse, right? There you go. Keep you out of the doghouse, right? So do we love our wives because of the things that we do for them? No. We don't love our wife because of what we do for her. I don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm just really not feeling love my wife today, right? I think I'm going to go do the dishes, and I think, uh, I think maybe then I'll love my wife, right? It doesn't work like that. She doesn't wake up on a Saturday morning and go, you know what? I think I'm going to go mow the lawn today so that he doesn't have to, and then maybe, maybe I'll, I'll love him after I do that, right? That's not how it works, right? It works the opposite. Because of my love for my wife, I do things for her. Because she loves me, there are things that we place of importance in our life, right? <clears throat> and so it's the same way with us and God. And so if you've been through heart and soul recently, you're going to recognize uh, these images that are up here, right? We have the broken system, right? And so it starts and ends with us, and it works starting with us that we are working 
for our acceptance, right? The same way that I would say, uh, it's, it's silly for me to say that I would do something for my wife so that she would love me, right? But this is the way that we try and do things for the world so that we can feel accepted, right? We're working for our acceptance. And then once we feel accepted, we think that God will love us, right? And that's just not how it works, right? We call this works-based righteousness, right? The idea that we're able to earn our salvation by the obedience of God's commands, right? But scripture makes it very clear that our salvation comes from grace, right? Not of ourselves, but the work of Jesus alone, right? And so God's system, as we move on, right? God's plan of reconciliation, right? We see that it Where does it start? It starts and ends with God, not with us, right? And so because God loved us, because he sent his son, then we in return love him. And because we love him, we are compelled by that love, right? Second Corinthians says, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised, right? And so we see that because of God's love for us and our love for him in return, then we are compelled to show that love through our actions. And in return, we don't receive anything, right? We don't receive anything from the world when we love them, but in return, what happens? God is glorified, right? His glory is extended, right? So again, the same way that my love for my spouse compels me to do things for her, the same way that my love for God compels me to do things for the world, right? And when you think about that, how much greater is God's love for me? How much greater should my love be for God than for my spouse, right? All right. So as we continue on, Verse 14, uh, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, then what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Right, which brings us to our second point. Prayer is not a substitute for action. Right? Prayer is not a substitute for action. And don't get me wrong, it is never wrong to pray. It is never wrong to pray, but it can be wrong to use prayer as an excuse not to act. Right, so what does he say? He says, that same poor person, right? They come into your meeting, they come into your church, they're dirty. Right? They got old, worn-out clothes. They haven't eaten in a few days. They haven't showered. They might smell a little bit. They're hungry. They're a little cold, right? as cold as it gets in South Georgia. Right? And so they come in, and what do you tell them? You tell them, you know what? I see that you're cold. You should really get warm. You should, you should try that, right? You should, you should get a coat. You know what? If you're cold, why not get a coat? If you're hungry, there's this place right down the street called Chick-fil-A great food, right? You can't go today because it's Sunday, right? (laughs) But tomorrow, right? Tomorrow they're going to have great food for you, right? I'm going to be praying for you that God will provide food tomorrow, right? How ridiculous is that, right? 
If someone in need comes to you and you says, you say, God's going to provide and I'll be praying for you, right? James says, how ridiculous is that? And he says, if that's your response, if that's what you do, then your faith is dead. Your faith is not alive, right? So you pray that God will provide, right? But what if I told you that you are that provision, right? What if you were put in that place at that time to meet the needs of someone that God put in front of you, right? We as the church are the provision for the needs of those around us, right? The orphans and the widows who can't take care of themselves, the poor who has needs that need to be met, right? What do we read in verse, verse 27 in chapter 1? That is pure and undefiled religion before God, to meet those needs, to take care of those people. All right, let's make it a little more personal. <clears throat> I left my water over there. Um, <clears throat> all right, so every week we come here and we pray for the unreached people groups, all right? We pray for them every week, but how are they going to know if someone doesn't go? Thank you. All right, what does Romans 10 say? How then can they call on him that they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Are we going to be called beautiful because we brought good news? Or are we praying for someone else to go, right? When was the last time that we prayed as an individual, right? Not that someone else would go, but that God would show you if you were supposed to go, right? When was the last time you prayed that God would show you the action that you could take to engage an unreached people group, right? We, we if you've been to Engage Global, you... Um, You've seen the, the five areas of missions, right? And what's everyone's, what's everyone's first, first thought of which, uh, which, which place they're supposed to be in, right? The intercessor, the prayer, right? I can do that. I don't have to go. I don't have to give, right? But I can pray, right? And when was the last time that you prayed whether or not you should go or whether or not you should give? Right? And so we heard Michael use this analogy a couple weeks ago, right? Charles Spurgeon was asked if one of his students, uh, whether those who'd never heard about Jesus could ever be saved, right? And he said a troubling question, but even more troubling was whether we who know the gospel and do nothing to take it to the lost could actually be saved, right? If we who have the gospel, we who have the good news, are unwilling to take it to someone who does not, then how could we actually be saved? Right? And so um, it made me think about this. When I, was, uh, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I never really heard uh, guys talk about this, but I heard girls talk about it all the time, and they'd say, oh, when we're you know, old in the nursing home together, then we'll reflect back on our on our time as teenagers and the lives that we had. And 
it made me think um, to, to the time when, when I get to that point, um, when I'm in my rocking chair sitting on my front porch and I'm sitting next to my wife and we're talking about the lives that we've lived and, you know, do we want to be the person who sits there and, and, and says, you remember, you remember that woman, that single mom with, with the kids? They used to, they used to run around and just mess up all the chairs at the church and just to run around and be crazy. And I wonder, I wonder, wonder whatever happened to those kids, right? I know, I know we sure prayed for them, right? I didn't ever, didn't ever offer to keep her kids so that she could catch a break. I didn't ever offer to buy her any groceries or anything, right? But I know I prayed for them, right? Whatever happened to those kids, right? Or those unreached people groups, right? I know, I know we prayed for those unreached people groups, but I wonder if anybody ever actually went, right? What happened to that unreached people group that we prayed for? Right? Are we going to sit there and wonder what happened to the things that we prayed about? Or do we want to be the type of people who know what happened? We know what happened to that single mom. We know what happened to those unreached people because what did we do? We got up and we did something and we got involved and we saw a need and we met the need. Right? And so he says in verse 17, in the same way that faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Right, then the opposite must be true. Right? A living faith, if we have true faith, then it will do something. If we truly have faith, then we will get up and we will do something. Right? And so I mentioned uh, at the beginning that when, we, when, I, when I started uh, Connect Group, when we first started coming to Connection, that we went through a study on James and we did a, a Francis Chan study on James. And he used this analogy, um, and it's stuck with me for years and years and years. And he talks about these TV shows that I'm sure many people are familiar with. And he, he talks about the, if you've seen the Thousand Pound Sisters, right, or My 600 Pound Life, or if you want to get a little bit older, The, uh, the Biggest Loser, right? We watch these shows, and, and we see these people, and what's happened is they've, they've consumed their whole, their whole life. Right? They've consumed for so long, they've eaten and eaten and eaten, and they've got to, gotten to a point where they are unable to do anything else. They've gotten to a point where they sit on the couch or they lay in bed, and, and they may every once in a while get up and go to the, mat, go to the bathroom. Right? They can't get up and go to the mailbox. It's too far away. Right? But what do they still do? They still eat. They still consume, right? And if they can't do it on their own, what do they do? They have someone else do it for them. They have someone else bring them food and bring them what they need to eat. And so we sit there and we watch these shows and we see these people and we think, how did they get to that point, right? I can't imagine ever going through what it takes to get to this point, right? How do I end up being... 600 pounds, right? But what I want to tell you is, if we look at this church, if we look at the church, not this church, if we look at the church, right, there's a lot of people who sit in these chairs who spiritually are 600 pounds. And they don't know how they've gotten there, 
right? They've consumed and consumed and consumed for so long, right? They've sat in their chair and they've said, feed me, feed me, feed me. And they've listened to their sermons and they've listened to their podcasts and they know all there is. They're so fat on their spiritual knowledge, right? They're so fat on their theology and their eschatology and their ecclesiology. But they've become so fat that they're unable to use their spiritual application, right? So my challenge to you this morning is, are we going to be a church that continues to consume? Or are we going to be a church that gets up and puts our spiritual knowledge into spiritual application so that we can reach spiritual maturity? Right, and so we continue on in verse 18, right? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works, right? And I can just hear him, right? He's standing up in front of the synagogue and he's, he's reading this letter, right? And he says, someone, right? I'm not gonna call out any names here, right? But we all know who I'm talking about. Someone, <laughs> one of you is going to say that you have faith and I have works, right? This is my gift. I have the gift of faith, right? You have the gift of works. They're different things. I'm going to stay over here with my faith, and you stay over there with your works, right? We've lived under the law. We no longer have to work, right? We have faith now, so I'm going to stay here with my faith, and you stay over there with your works, right? But what does he say? He says, show me. If you have faith, show me. Prove it. How do I know that you have faith? right? So our next point is our faith can only be shown by our actions, right? Our faith can only be shown by our actions. So as we pick up in verse 19, you believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder, right? Some, some translations use the word tremble, right? And so here he's making a reference to the Shema, the Jewish prayer, Right? They would get up every morning and they would say this Jewish prayer and they would say it before they went to bed every night and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord our God is one. Right? And he says, that's great. That's great that you believe that God is one. Right? But even the demons believe. Right? What does he say? For those of you who have been to Engage Global again, right? It's not incorrect. It's incomplete. Right? It's great that you believe, but it's not enough. The demons believe that God is real. They acknowledge that he exists, and they acknowledge that he is one, but it doesn't do anything for them right? because they have no works to accompany their belief. And so he continues, and he says, so here's an example of the demons who, who have faith but no works. Right? You need an example of someone who has faith and works. Well, then let's look at Abraham. Right? Who better than to look at than the father of our faith in Abraham. So in verse 20 or uh, 21, what does he say? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works his faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
right? So what I want you to see is that Abraham was justified by his faith long before he ever offered Isaac on the altar, right? Genesis 15 says, shows Abraham, he was old, right? He was without children, and he receives this vision, right, where God tells him that his offspring are going to outnumber the stars, right? And so 15.6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him as righteousness, right? So this is the point where Abraham is justified by his faith before he even has Isaac, right? And so he was justified because of his belief. But what we see that it wasn't until his obedience in offering his son that it was demonstrated that his faith was real, right? So in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so on the surface, it may seem that we're talking about some contradictory things here, right? We've got James who says that we are justified by works. And then we've got Paul over here in Romans where it says we conclude that a person is justified by faith. So we got one justified by works and one justified by faith, right? But what we need to see here is that we're talking about two different things, right? James says we are justified by works, and Paul says we are justified by faith. But Paul is talking about justification through the Mosaic law, right? When he talks about works of the law in Romans, he says we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We no longer have to live under the law that we've lived on so far, and now we are justified by our faith. And so in the same way, James says we are justified by works, but they are works that, become, that come because of our faith. Right? They are works that come after our faith, not works that are trying to earn our faith. Right? And so he continues in verse 25. He says, if that example is not enough, right? Abraham, father of our faith, easy example. But if that's not a good enough example for you, then we're going to talk about Rahab, right? And so again, I can, I can just see it like he's standing, standing in front of the synagogue reading this letter, and there's a couple guys in the back row who are kind of nodding off, not really paying attention, and all of a sudden they perk up, and they're like, did he just say Rahab, right? Like, surely he didn't just say Rahab. Right? And then you got the people in the front row who are actually paying attention, and they're like, I heard him say Rahab, but surely that's not, not what he meant. Right? Rahab, like you just talked about Abraham, the father of our faith, the founder. And then we're going to say that in the same way that Abraham was justified by his faith, Rahab was also justified. Right? In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at is who was Rahab? Right? First off, she was a woman, which in this society, society automatically knocks her down a peg. Right? Not only was she a woman, she was a prostitute, right? Got to knock her down another peg, right? Rahab, one of the lowest class of citizens that you could be in this culture, 
right? So she was a uh, citizen of Jericho, right? Jericho was resistant to Israel's attempts to spread the word of God, right? So ultimately, Jericho becomes an enemy of Israel, and God commands the army of Israel to come and conquer Jericho, all right, so Jericho, Joshua sends spies into Jericho, right? And the king finds out that Joshua has sent spies into the city, right? And Rahab hides those spies, right? And she hides them in her house. And when the king's men come to search for the spies, she says, yeah, they were here. Yep, they, they were definitely here. But they're not here anymore, right? They're not up on the roof. I'm pretty sure they went that way, all right? And so the king sends his men in search of where, where Rahab says that the men went, and the men make a deal with Rahab. And they say, if you let us escape, if you tell us that when we come and we conquer your city, because we will conquer your city because God has told us to, right, then your family will stay safe. Right? And what we see ultimately is by her obedience, just in the same way that Abraham was obedient, Rahab was obedient, and ultimately God's glory was extended. Right? And so we see that as she was justified by her works, in the same way that Abraham, she was justified because her faith led to action. Right? And because her obedience led to action, in the same way that Abraham was the founder of the faith, Rahab ultimately finds herself in the lineage of Jesus. Right? This woman, this prostitute in a city who is an enemy of God, ultimately finds herself in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so the last thing I want to leave you with this morning as ultimately spiritual maturity leads to spiritual awareness, right? And so we see in this culture that it's a, a typical pagan practice, right, for people to sacrifice their children, right? They, it says, uh, says in 2 Kings that they make their children pass through the fire and they offer them as an offering of food to their gods. And so God says, well, I'm going to use this same type of test to affirm the faith of Abraham, right? Not to show God that Abraham had faith. God knew that Abraham had faith because Abraham believed when God told him what he would do for him, right? But he's going to use this test to demonstrate Abraham's faith to the world around him and ultimately use this as an example for generations to come that we're still studying and talking about today, right? And so Abraham was aware that what God was doing was a test. But because of his spiritual maturity, he was able to complete the task that was given to him, knowing that God would provide an acceptable sacrifice. Because if God did not provide the sacrifice, then God could not have kept his promise to Abraham. And if God cannot keep his promise, then he's not God. It's against his character. When he promises us, he has to keep. And so we see that we too have been given a task. We've been given a mission, right? And we have to know that God's going to provide what we need 
to complete that task because if he doesn't, he can't keep his promise and he's not God. And that's against the character of God. And so last thing this morning, Mark 13, 32 through 37 says, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels is heaven nor the son, but only the father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house. He gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. And so what I want to leave you with this morning is if you, if you call yourself a Christian, right, then you are a servant of the master, right? And our master has gone away and he's given us a task, right? He's given us the authority to complete that task, right? We've been given work to do, and we've been commanded to be alert while we do that work, right? And so if you're a Christian in this place this morning, are you asleep or are you alert, right? And if you are alert, are you watching and waiting for the master to return. And if you are watching and waiting for the master to return, are you working while you wait? Right? When the master returns, are you going to be able to show him by your works that your faith was real? Is he going to be able to judge you and say that you did well because your faith was real. Lord Jesus, we just thank you again for this opportunity to just come into your house this morning and talk about your word. Just thank you for uh, the spirit of these words this morning. Again, just grateful and humble And I pray this morning that, that this word was received by open hearts, that it was felt with love, that even though it's challenging, that even though it's convicting, that we would take it and know that it's said with love. Because if we care and we love the church, then it would be unloving of us as teachers and leaders to not challenge and encourage to examine whether or not our faith is real. So if you're in this place this morning and this has been challenging and convicting and encouraging, there's people who want to pray for you. I'll pray with you. Michael will pray with you. Ms. Pat will pray with you. But ultimately know that these words come with love because we have a master who loves us and has given us a mission. And ultimately, I care and I love you and I want to see this church become spiritually mature 
so that we can accomplish the mission. Thank you.